0: to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Stam Audio. Stam Audio creates 0 compromise recording gear that is light on the wallet. Only the best components are used, and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind, getting the best sound possible. Go to stamaudio.com for more info. And now your hosts, Joey Sturges, Joel Wanasek, and Al Levy.
1: Hey everyone, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine podcast, and today with us we have a very special guest,
0: the man, Kevin Churko. How you doing? Pretty good, guys. How about you? Doing great, man. Thanks for coming on, uh, as I was saying earlier, been big fans of your work and have hope that you would come on at some point we had your amazing son on and that was great and we we're just hoping that some point you would come so thank you for being here no and uh, i just have a question something i've been wondering for a while because you do so many different things from helping with songwriting to mixing to producing to just engineering what would you consider yourself like if you think of yourself in one way or do you think of yourself as one thing primarily like a musician first, or a mixer, or does it right. not matter? You just do Kevin Cherko.
2: Well, wow, that that's um, that's a tough question. I've actually never had that question been asked, so that's really cool. It's a good way to start. How do I think of myself? You know what? Honestly, I guess the big picture is I just think of myself as helping other artists successfully do whatever they want to do. And that includes if they need me to write, I write. If they need me to just mix, I mix. If they want me to produce, I'll do that. But I think my ultimate goal is just to really make great music with other people, and uh, this enables me not to go on the road. <laughs> so
1: oh, did just... you used to go on the road? <laughs>
2: uh, oh yeah, I mean, I'm I'm that I'm that guy that started out. You know, I mean, honestly, I'm not going to bore you with the whole thing, but basically. My dad was a choir teacher at school, so, you know, this is starting off, right? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, he, he had a weekend band, and then us kids, you know, myself, my brother and siblings, you know, uh, got old enough to start playing in his band. And so, basically, he fired his guys <laughs> in his band and hired us, and we began playing. And so, by the time I was in ninth grade, I was pretty much officially on the road permanently, and we travel across Canada back and forth, and and um, you know that went on for quite a few few years.
1: So, how did you make the transition then into making actual records, as opposed to you know being like a touring musician?
2: Well, I think in my case, my brother and I always had um, we were always recording. So, no matter what band we were playing in. You know, in those days, it wasn't as easy as it is now. In those days, we had to save our money to buy a Tascam two, 244, which I'm not sure <laughs> if you guys would know, but that changed changed our lives in a certain sense. I mean, we were able to all of a sudden record just like the records we were listening to. And, you know, because we were in a band, we had the family band, we had microphones, mixing boards, all the instruments, so it would literally be that, you know, I would play the drum track into two channels and then we'd bounce you know like through the mixing motor chords and then bounce all of this, that stuff down uh, with a bass guitar onto um, a mono track say and then we'd you know just using four tracks just keep bouncing back and forth until till we had an actual song so I think from the earliest of times even before that I remember being about nine or ten and having a ghetto blaster on a chair with a s SM5, sm58 into that speaker so i'd play back a track i just recorded on it and while that was playing back into the microphone going to the mixing board i would also play bass and then i'd have that tape and then i'd play that tape through the ghetto blaster and then go through the mixing board again and add add guitar on and keep doing these things back and forth until i actually had a recording so that was actually the first recording that was probably when i was like nine or ten and i just never really stopped
0: that's kind of fascinating to me that so you got indoctrinated at a really young age into making music and sound.
2: I was to- totally thinking from a recording point of view from from the word go.
0: That's amazing. So just out of just cuz I think it's an obvious question but since we've had Kane on who is amazing as well like was it an idea to I guess indoctrinate him from a really young age into music or did he just do you think he just grew up around you and so he saw dad doing it and wanted to do it as well
1: yeah I'm curious in this because I have kids as well and I'm curious you know what you did because obviously you were incredibly successful at it because Kane is so awesome at what he does so give us the roadmap
2: (laughs) well um you'd be surprised I actually didn't encourage him I didn't make it easy on him. I mean, because I was, you know, by the time I was four, I was in piano lessons and, you know, practicing every day and this and that. And, you know, my wife had a different idea about how to raise kids. So she she wanted, you know, the kids to be interested in it if they were interested in it and not just to follow sort of my family's path just because it was easy for us and... That's what I knew. So basically, I didn't encourage him. I just let it come naturally. I mean, my dad's a music teacher, so he went to my dad for a while for piano lessons and that sort of thing. But like any other kid, uh, didn't practice a whole lot <laughs> at that time. <laughs> so, you know, I was I would have been a little bit more sort of vigilant and more martial law with him, making him practice the way that my parents kind of enforced it on us a little bit more. But, you know, I think my wife just... Didn't want that kind of man- mentality in the house, and so um, so then he just kind of fell off, and I just kept doing what I did. And one day I came home, and he had downloaded Cakewalk, and he was playing guitar into this into the computer, and you know, of course, I was in Pro Tools fully at that point, and working like a couple of different studio jobs, and and so I just kind of watched him and. He needed some tech help, so I kind of helped him out a little bit, and just saw where it went. And a couple weeks later, he was doing vocals. He, I, you know, brought a microphone home, and he, you know, started to record actual songs. And a couple weeks later, they were getting better and better. And and then, basically, I reacted to what he did. And and once he showed signs of truly being interested in it, I would give him another tool. You know, I. would I mean, eventually I could get him a Pro Tools rig. I mean, when he started out, we were broke, so I couldn't really buy him anything. I had borrow stuff, but we couldn't really have a setup at home. So little bit by little bit, he showed interest, and little bit by little bit, I I kind of unlocked another door for him. And then eventually he became, you know, the cane that you know.
0: That's that's really, really interesting. That's amazing. My, uh, my dad is a symphony conductor, so he got me going on it really, really young. And... uh I guess uh, having grown up around it like that, it's uh, it's really interesting to me how how it works in other fa- other musical families too.
2: I would think that my early you know childhood was probably similar to yours. I think I think people in that classical field and in that sort of edu- educated musical world tend to probably be harder on their kids and tend to oh yeah you know go by I don't know. I mean, I don't know what it was down here, but in Canada they have what's called the Royal Conservatory of Music. And every one of us kids from the time we were four or five, it's like... You know, it's like Hockey Dad, except it's Music Dad. And he's, you know, he's not taking us to the rink every every day and forcing us to skate. But, you know, we got the grand piano, and we each one of us had a secondary instrument. And probably like yourself, yep. you know, it's work, 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 work. And then we have Band Practice Day, and then we have Vocal Practice Day and Harmony Practice Day. And it's, it, you know, I, I mean, I guess I was kind of the Wayne Gretzky of music in a sense, that I had that dad that was fully committed. But at the same time... You know, I mean, he wasn't Michael Jackson's dad. He wasn't Joe Jackson beating me or anything like that. I mean, really, us kids just really grasped it and loved it, and just eventually, you know, we just took off on our own, more so than waiting for him to instruct us. Then we were teens, and then we had the bands and the house, and, you know, so it, it was really, for us, for most of us kids, a great, great life.
0: Well, I mean, he, I actually wanted to do it. That's the thing. It wasn't, I wasn't being forced I just saw what he was doing and wanted to emulate it even when I was like three years old. But it was it wasn't like, you know, living in a military family or anything like that. But it was okay, more cool, just yeah. like a, more just like an example to follow or something like that. Um, so, yeah, that's right. It's Just fascinating to me how that works. Sounds pretty similar. Um, I think as
2: as, as parents, that's, that's all we can mostly do is just, you know, be the example. You, you don't want your kids to smoke, don't smoke. You don't want them to drink, don't drink. You want them to be interested in stuff, you should be interested in stuff. And even if they're interested in different stuff, I think that they'll, they probably pick up a lot more than we would think, you know?
1: Yeah, very interesting, like I said, because I have a couple of kids under the age of five. I've, often wonder, you know, how hard should I push him, should I push him at all, you know, I'm not quite sure, but my wife is definitely like, I don't want your kids doing music when they grow up, <laughs> so <laughs> it's uh, pretty, pretty fascinating. We'll see what happens, right?
2: I think that the wife yang for your ying is probably important.
1: I mean, more (laughs) ways than one. (laughs) Yeah, she keeps me in line. (laughs) Yeah, I I think
2: all of us creative types, you know, I mean, I like to think that in my relationship, my job is to dream and to be bigger than life. And my wife's job is to tell me that's not possible or to tell me the repercussions of failing or the repercussions of doing, you know, of not having that, that happen. So... I think that you do. I think that's why there's husband and wife or husband and husband, whatever it is. I mean, you know, two people, let's say, in as parents or two people in a relationship that I think it's good to have a little bit of pushback on on your
0: pull.
1: In more ways than one. Again. Definitely. <laughs> so, I see we married the same woman. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, aside from parenting, do you think that an influence like that has been helpful in your life and career as a whole, like having someone to ground you? Yeah,
2: yeah, I'd, I'd have to say so. I mean, you know, again, I, I was raised in a pretty, you know, decent family. So, I mean, that probably hurt me artistically because I didn't have the drama in my life that so many of the people I work with have. But I I think certainly in my personal life, so you have to understand we were teenage parents, and so, you know, we had a lot of struggle from the top. And I think that having someone who's a little bit more, let's call it realistic, is I think a good balance for most of us who are creative and really on a, you know, I mean, you have to be creative and you have to be over the top. I think most of the time in this business in order to succeed, in order to have an extra edge on some, somebody else, you know, as engineers, if this is just an engineering interview, I mean, those guys should be as, as well-balanced as they possibly can and very concerned with Almost science in a certain sense, a science of sound. But I think as creators, and you know, at the top of the the questions, I mean, you ask me, what do I consider myself? You know, it it's, it can be very difficult because you have to keep putting on a different hat, and, and your brain has to keep thinking a different way from where you're writing with the artist to where you're just recording that vocal, and even recording the vocal. I mean, I like working alone a lot of the time with that artist, so I don't have necessarily, you know, a staff of engineers. Or assistance, or anything kind of behind me checking on levels and doing this and that. So I got to have my, you know, scientific engineering hat on, but at the same time, really concentrate on the the more important and bigger picture of of what's actually being recorded.
0: Do you think that uh, working with Mutt Lang helped enforce the scientific engineering side of things, or were you already thinking that way before you went in with him?
2: Um... I think I'd be a moron to think it didn't affect me. I mean, it was huge. I mean, I kind of would put it like this. I worked for, you know, like I said, I probably got it started like seriously recording by the time I was maybe 13, 14. And I worked for 25 years to be able to work for him. And then my education started at that point. You know, it wasn't like I had every skill I needed to work for him, but I had a lot of skills. You know, and I was a drummer, which he really appreciated. You know, he's a big time time guy. So, yeah, I would say I would definitely not be sitting in this chair that I'm sitting in now without him. You know, him or somebody. I mean, I, I was exceptionally lucky because he was my hero.
1: How did you get hooked up with him? Uh, I, well, it's,
2: you know, it's a simple yet long story. So, my brother Corey was in his wife's band. So he was one of those three fiddle players that you used to see, you know, traveling around the country. And oddly enough, I mean, I'll tell you the whole story. I mean, you guys can edit this down any way you want. <laughs> so basically, you know, we're, we're Canadian, so we were up in Canada. And Shania's label up in Canada was trying to find young fiddle players that looked kind of rock and roll but could still play. So they contacted my brother, Corey, and he basically got the gig instantly. I mean, he went down there, and his first gig was like David Letterman or something. And so you're, you're taking, you know... Not quite, boys from the farm, because he was living in Vancouver at that that time. But you're you're taking people that aren't used to that kind of kind of success and stage show, and you know really pull pull vaulted him up that ladder. But I mean, they liked him so much that that they wanted me me to audition to play drums. So I went down there to to, to New York, and by that time I was already already pretty much just studio guy. I hadn't been playing as much as I I did as a kid. But basically, I failed. Thankfully, I failed, and I didn't get the gig, and uh, but that worked out well because a bunch of years later they were sitting around the table and Mutt was looking for a new engineer, a new programmer, a new Pro Tools guy. So they knew that on my resume I had originally sent in, I had all my studio experience and stuff, and so basically I think it was and I asked, Corey, he said, doesn't your brother do, do, do that? And he said, yeah, it's, you know, let me give you his number kind of thing, N- not thinking that they would ever call me, really. It's just a conversation at lunch. And then, um, and, and, you know, he gave me the heads up, sent me, me an email saying, you know, probably nothing's ever going to happen on this, but just in case, you know, I'm giving you the head, heads up. And sure enough, about a couple weeks later, my called in the middle of the night and it started with a phone call. He just called to chat and, you know, probably get a feel for, for who I was. And... Um these days he'd be probably trying to check if I was a Donald Trump fan or not, <laughs> and I'd be I'm not even be hired if I was, but um, but yeah, it just started with that, and then it started when he said, "Look, I'm, I might be looking for a guy, I might not be looking for a guy. I'm just giving you a shout and saying hi." And it started like that, and eventually he flew me over there for a couple of days, and you know, little bit by little bit.
0: That's awesome. So that first time that uh, the first time that you went for it and uh, you said that you failed in that pursuit did uh that get you down or did it discourage you or was it just like okay whatever i'm just gonna keep going anyways
2: yeah i was totally crushed i mean i thought that was my one shot i mean you're you gotta understand we're sitting up in saskatchewan you know canada and i'm doing like two jobs flying from a little post studio to a music studio doing everything i can just to pay the bills and I finally get my shot, and I basically fail at it. I mean, it could be argued with, a, with whether I fail or not, but I didn't get the gig, so to me that's that's failure. So I thought, well, there's my shot. and it did change the way I thought after after that, too.
0: How so and what in what way?
2: Mm, well, you know, I think I mistakenly believed that you only get one or two shots, and if you don't make it, that you should do other things. so. I had a brother-in-law who was data programming for a company called SAP, which is like a database management kind of program for big companies and corporations like Coca-Cola and those kinds of things. And he was, this guy was making $200 an hour and he was basically a college dropout, but he knew this program really well and he's making $200 an hour. I'd put like 25 years into this and I was, you know, making zero. (laughs) So I thought, well, I can do that. I'm a smart dude. And so, uh, basically, I went to a power course, like a one-month training course in Toronto. You know, that's my Canadian roots coming coming out. And I learned as much as I could. And then, you know, thinking that, you know what? Fuck music. I'm done with this. I worked so hard. Yeah, it, it was just, you know, really a struggle. So I said, just screw this. I mean, I got a family. I got to support them. I, I just can't keep on working for a dream You know, and you have to understand that, you know, I'd be working like, you know, 16 hour days, not just going for eight hours or not being able to get gigs. I had gigs and I had work, but it was just always that struggle and not doing the level of work that I wanted to be working on or doing the level of bands I wanted to be working with. So I basically went to Toronto and did this power SAP course and Ace through that because, I mean, what we do as music programmers and mu- musicians is very math-based and, you know, you really have to think that way that, you know, a program would, would think. And And so I didn't really have any trouble grasping the program and, and all that sort of thing and, and it went really well. But right after that, all the companies started focusing on the Y2K problem that everybody was apparently going to have and they stopped expanding their database management uh, departments and so all of a sudden I still had no job. So then <laughs> I was, thought I was going to get a two $200 an hour job, but instead I'm back in Regina again, just, um, you know, recording some good bands, but also a lot of bad bands and, you know, as well as doing Foley and I was just back to my old life of, you know, just trying to make ends
0: meet. So was the transition when you met, when you started working for Mutt, was that like the big transformation in your life or... Was it already getting better at that point?
2: You know what? Just before I started working for him, it it wasn't necessarily awesome, but it was stable. Meaning that you know I had my roster of clients, and you know, like I said, I could float back and forth between a, a post studio and a um, music studio, and as well, I, I was still playing. I mean, I got sort of a salary job playing drums for an for an artist there, and so I, ha- you know, I had a pretty decent life. You know, own my own house, all that sort of thing. But really, when Mutt called me again and when I started going to Switzerland there to work, it really did expand myself in every way possible from personally to of course professionally and just I think getting out of Canada was was important for you know for my education too and for anybody's education, leaving their sort of home country I think is a wonderful way to realize there's more than one point of view out there. And it's a great way to learn to stimulate your mind, you know, whether it's just a language barrier or whether it's a cultural barrier. I mean, I think probably I grew a lot as a person looking back into the box instead of being in the box the entire time.
0: Definitely. I can relate to that totally. So was it like just getting thrown in the deep end? basically, when uh, you went to Switzerland?
2: You know what? I mean, I was really ready for it. The reason why I went back, you know, the reason why he hired me is because the first time I went over there for my weekend, so let's call it, he just wanted me to come over and hang out for, for a couple days. So I went there, and I parachuted into the studio. They were having a sync problem that I had fixed a billion times, just syncing tape to the Pro Tools rig, and his guy couldn't get it happening. He wanted to sample accurate and within 15 minutes I fixed a problem he had been having for weeks so I think technically at that time I was really ready and technically at that time you know I was a pro tools wizard I mean I'm far less a pro tools wizard now because I have so many things to worry about but at that time I mean I knew almost everything there was to know about about that program because I had worked with it in so many ways and so extensively so I think I was exactly what he needed to bridge the um you know, the analog to digital gap. So, I was really ready for it, but at the same time, I mean, I had to learn a lot of stuff, too. I mean, I remember I'd never worked with Logic, and he was using Logic for his for his MIDI a lot of the times. And so on the plane, I got that Logic manual, and I don't know if you remember some of those original Logic manuals, how thick... I mean, the Bible has nothing on that. <laughs> I, I mean, it, 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 it was huge, and I had no hands-on with it, so I'd never even been on a Logic system, but I'm on the plane for... 12 hours over there was not, I guess not 12 hours, but long enough to try to learn as much as I could. And the first thing I did is convert all his logic sessions into Pro Tool sessions just so I could, you know, know a little bit more about the program and not be caught up on having to learn shortcuts and learn all the logic. At that time, it was a lot less user friendly, a lot more German like. So, but yeah, I mean, I did, I had to go from, I mean, I was lucky because at the music studio I worked at back in Canada, the the guy Grant Hall, he was a gear fiend. And so he had, he always tried to get one of everything and he was always on the cutting edge of any gear and any, especially digital stuff, but even analog gear too. So I knew, you know, I had, and plus all the studios that I had recorded as a band and all that kind of stuff, I, I, I had a pretty solid education all the way through. And so, But when I showed up there, Mutt really did have one of everything, and he may use, want to use any one of those things at any given time. So definitely, I mean, I would go to the bathroom on a bathroom break, and I'd take a manual with me just to randomly <laughs> read parts of that manual, just in case I learned something I didn't know, which I always did, of course, just so that when he needed something done, I was ready for him. I mean, I was there to stay. I wasn't there to float in and, you know, work for a week and go home. I wanted to learn a lot, so... I knew I knew that if I gave him a lot and if I was very useful to him, he would keep me around a long time.
0: Yeah. We always tell our listeners to read the manuals. (laughs) That's like one of the first in one of our first episodes ever. We talked about that at length. I think Joey talked about reading the ozone manual. And uh, we always tell our listeners that if you're wondering about how something works, rather than posting a question online, go read the manual. Check it out for yourself. Um, there's a reason that the manufacturers write these, and most of the info you yeah. want is right there. And you'll give yourself such an edge over people because barely anyone ever reads the manuals.
2: I would say that's one thing I always enforce my guys to to do because you just have a so much more thorough understanding of whatever you're working with. I mean, I agree with you. And in fact, now, I mean, I mean, Kane's kind of the generation that's not a manual user. So I have to fight with Kane every now and then about, asking me a question versus reading the manual. And I guess I'm to blame now too because I don't always have time to dig into it. So I will ask him questions if he knows and he'll ask me questions of stuff I know. But the reality is, is I used to train a lot of guys and I would show them stuff and finally realized, you know what, if these guys can't learn this shit on their own, then they shouldn't be working here. I mean, they should become making my life better instead of me just making their lives better. It's, It's easy. It's never been easier these days to learn stuff to learn anything than now. I mean, even your program, your podcast, interviewing people. I mean, there's so many, many um, resources, YouTube, you know, programs to learn stuff. I mean, it's it's literally you're able to learn everything you need to almost at home. And when I was coming up, I remember going to my first SSL room and I had to mix. And I would literally, I went to the studio ahead of time and photogra- or photocopied their manual. We didn't have the internet <laughs> back then. And I would literally (laughs) photograph 80 pages, the relevant mixing sections of the SSL so that I would know... And I'd read up on all the stuff just so that I would know ahead of time. At least give myself a fighting start of what trim mode was, what you know, how you could sidechain stuff, everything like that that I needed to know. I would I just read the whole manual. So by the time I showed up, I knew stuff. And I didn't know everything, but at least I knew the key points. And then this distant could fill me in on all the things that I didn't didn't know.
1: This is exactly why you worked with Mutt Lang. I think. He kind of requires that level of uh, dedication and commitment to the craft,
2: and it makes sense totally that you were there. Well, and the thing is that, that he's such a nice guy that he's never, he's never mean to you. he's never yells at you, never demeans you, but at the same time, his expectation—you know his expectation is so high that you're either going to get the job done no matter what the cost, or you're going to leave, and I think he knows that. And so most people that get that shot with, with him, they rise to the challenge or they don't don't last.
0: That makes me wonder now, like hearing like what you had to go through and that you train people or have trained people, I'm just getting your viewpoint a little That Makes me wonder, like, so say you're hiring an assistant. What What are the requirements? Like, what do you expect to be just assumed if you're going to be taking on an intern or an engineer or an assistant or just something? Like, what do you think should be just... An understood thing that this person is a bad asset. This, this, and this, and it shouldn't even come up.
2: Honestly, I think that the first, the first key thing these days are computer skills and pro tool skills. And it's sad to say that, but so many of the things that I need are te- technologically based fixes or someone to take that off my shoulders, so I don't have to troubleshoot stuff, so I don't have to you know, worry about what the problem is. So I think that if I'm hiring an assistant, the first and foremost thing, if they don't even have computer chops, then they're probably not my guy because that's almost something you get naturally. Everything else you have to try almost harder for. But if, if you're not able to navigate around a Mac or if you're not able to navigate within Pro Tools itself and understand a lot about that program, then you're almost wasting my time. Because the other stuff, the fun stuff, the setting up microphones, recording stuff, working with those kind of people, I mean, that's all fun. But it's, it's easy to eat ice cream at the end of your meal, maybe a hard, <laughs> little bit harder to eat the vegetables at the start of your meal. So, so I, 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 need, I need that guy who's eating a well-balanced diet so that, um, you know, so that he has something to offer me. And I tell, you know, I mean, it's a business in a sense. So I tell, I tell all the new guys the same thing. I'm going to pay you according to how much value you're bringing me. And if you can do a lot of stuff I need to done already, then awesome. I'm going to pay you a lot because you're making me money, you're, or at least you're making my life better. If I can go home two hours earlier because I know my guy's on it, that is valuable to my life. So that guy gets paid. For the guy that i got to sit down with and teach how to, how to time a drum track or shift regions around or you know, dial certain things up, if I got to sit down and train him, he's costing me money and he's costing me time, which is even more valuable than money these days is the amount of time I get to do other things outside of my studio. So, you know, but all these things, all these skills and talents that people have that are valuable to me, it basically all comes from having a good attitude and having some ambition in life and let's call it a sense of optimism, and I think that gets you through the bad times is that, you know, you're hungry for it and you want to learn and you're excited by it. And that's a, that's sort of a mentality that's easily found in people or easily not found. And I can probably after, you know, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. So, I mean, obviously I can have some guy in here and I can probably within a matter of minutes pick him apart pretty quick and realize what makes him tick, even to the point of his childhood. And I can, I can generally tell pretty fast if a guy's going to last or if he's going to have the skills or going to be able to develop those skills, of not just for working for me, but in this industry in general. And as you guys know, it's brutal. I mean, I don't want to – I'm not negative, and I don't want to be negative for people starting, but, I mean, <laughs> if, you, if you can't win the stamina test, you're going to fail. And it's really as simple as, as that. And, you know, if you don't want to work – Every hour of your day, at least for a good bunch of years, you're going to fail. If you can't put, you know, going to the movies at the bottom of the list or taking gals or guys on dates, you're going to fail. I mean, it's just something that in order to rise to the top of this narrowing mountain, you you just have to, uh, you really have to have extra juice that other people don't have.
0: Ain't that the truth? Are you familiar with Zach Cervini? no. He uh, he's young, and uh, maybe what we we've had him on here. He's what twenty one, I believe.
1: Yeah, young kid, definitely.
0: Yeah, and uh, like he's just engineered on like the latest Blink one eighty two, and he, he's been working he's been working on some really really big stuff.
1: And he's Feldman's assistant.
0: Yes, he's a, he's Feldman's engineer basically, and he got the gig at a super young age. And one of the things that he talked about getting that gig and uh maintaining that gig is that he works like 16 to 18 hours a day almost every single day except for maybe one day off a week and he's done that for years and he loves it he doesn't mind and that's been one yeah. of the secrets to getting you know doing a-list records at the age of 21 or 22 has been his Incredible stamina.
2: Yeah, if if you're looking at this, if you, if you have to think, oh, I don't want to go to work today, even if all you're doing is going to get coffees for people, if you have to think, I still don't want to go to work on almost any day unless somebody's beating you up when you get there, if you have to think like that, this is not your career. It, it really has to be something where you're excited to do whatever you can do in order to keep getting better and keep getting better gigs. The, the better gigs come with you being better. So work on yourself first and those gigs will come. Funny
0: how that works, right?
1: Yep. Absolutely. So I wanted to change gears a little bit here, uh, if we don't mind. So Kevin, how do you keep on top of the rapidly changing market? I feel like this is one of the hardest things to do. And I'll just speak from personal experience when you work on, you know, recording artists or whatever for 14, 16 hours a day. The last thing you want to do is sit down, listen to the radio and say, okay, this trend is emerging in this market. Okay. Let's switch markets. This is coming in over here. I'm going to focus on that, etc." How do you do it?
2: Wow. That's another great question. I mean, you can tell you guys are pros.
0: That's a real difficult thing.
2: I mean, to be, be honest, we
0: just love talking about this stuff. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, the reality is, is the harder you work in a sense, the more out of touch that you are. Because you're not going to the grocery store and randomly hearing things, people play things, you're not going to parties where people are playing new new music, you're not hanging with friends, you're freaking working your ass off to get stuff done. So it's a double-edged sword, you have to work that hard in order to get ahead, but at the same time you do have to be in touch with what's going on out there. Honestly, I think having a family is a wonderful thing, because uh, Kane introduced me to a lot of music I normally wouldn't have heard. My wife listens to completely different music than what I listen to, both current and old. And my daughter is the best sounding board of them all, because she's not a musician. She's a young girl. By young, I mean like she's 23. And she listens to completely different music than all of us so I think I just peripherally hear a lot of things and they're on top of what's current and I just I just hear that stuff as you know I went to play frisbee golf with my daughter this morning and I get in and you know there's a Drake song on and that is probably not an artist that I would normally just gravitate towards but I'm listening to it and digging it and literally i mean we're all the same we're always trying to figure out what's turning people on from that track what what do people like about that why is it good why why is it at the top of the charts so i think we all have to have two musical minds are just out of pure love and who we are as people and what we want to listen to but then if you want to have be involved in the music business you of course have to understand what's current what's coming what's failing uh, what's making money and what's not. And and so I do, I I'd most definitely look at the charts of all sorts to understand what's doing well. And I'm not just talking about just radio charts because, say, you know, I'm mostly a rock guy these days and I can look at the rock charts and just because a song's number one on rock radio doesn't mean that it's selling anything at all. So to me, it's much more important to look at people who have careers And who are consistently working and consistently selling than just someone who has a single big song. So I guess to answer your question in a short way, I really listen to the people around me. And that's mostly my family and mostly my friends. And I'm lucky that they don't have the same interests as me and the same musical loves as me because I hear everything. And I think it's important to listen to everything, because that can be the difference between making yourself special. And in my case, I mean, I'm working with a lot of rock bands and a lot of heavy bands. And honestly, my even though, I mean, a lot of my bands are, you know, heavy bands, but my job is not to make them heavy. My job is to make them more palatable, for the average person who maybe wouldn't be a rock fan I mean I'm trying to bring people into the industry not just satisfy its root core who's going to sell who's not even going to buy enough product to give that artist a career so it's because I listen to all these other things and because I am current with other music that's I can maybe add some things to these bands and help them, you know, force them into, not force them, guide them into direction that is, you know, classic but still current at the same time. And it's a combination of people around you as well as consciously looking for it and consciously trying to see why are 21 Pilots selling amazing numbers? Why do people love them? You know... Why does Adele do as well as she she does? I, I mean, I'm not just thinking why is Me- Metallica doing as well as they're doing. I'm I'm just looking at all music
0: genres and all music people. So, like when you look at Adele, you study like what it is about her songs that inspire everybody.
2: Yeah, just I mean, obviously, at the root of it all, there's a there's a core. There's core principles, and that's one thing Elmo taught me as well. As a good song is a good song, and then the production and and the flavor of the month is just the clothes that you put on that that model. I mean, but all the bones, the bone structure, and everything is all there for a good, you know, hooky song. They're basic principles. It doesn't matter if it's pop or country or rock. I mean, it you know, so you can learn a lot by listening to any hit hit song and by anything that people are actively seeking out and, and whether it's Call Me Maybe or, or Iron Man, I mean, there's all principles that, that apply across the board and not just principles of music, but principle of marketing, direction of strategy. I mean, let's call it whether to be on Spotify, not to be on Spotify. I mean, I, I, I think that as I'm getting older, I'm probably starting to become much more business focused on music, you know, because that's what I have to deal with a lot of times. And so I'm under, I'm trying to understand not only people better of their tastes, but also the music industry themselves and the gatekeepers and what they're looking for. And, you know, if I could go back to being 21 again and playing in bands, I'd know exactly how to do it.
0: So do you advise your clients on business matters ever? Like, do you ever talk to them about business or are you just soaking it in for your own sake? So you know what's well, going on.
2: I think there's different levels of bands that I work with in the sense that some bands obviously I've been doing for a long time. So say like Five Finger Death Punch, I'm going into my sixth record with them. I mean, obviously, they live in my city, we're friends, we talk about a lot of those business things. So... They don't necessarily need my advice, but they'll throw ideas against me, you know, or at, at me. And, and I'm just aware of what's going on in their in their business, and even bands like In This Moment, too. I mean, I've done four records with Chris and Maria, so we're great friends. And, and plus, I get to see into a lot of sort of bands' business life, let's call it, just by being in the studio with them year after year. So I've seen a lot of situations, so... Bands will call me to see if I have any knowledge of what they're talking about or you know from everything from how much do we pay a side man to does this contract seem right and you know it's different levels some bands that I don't work with as much you know they're a little bit more private and I don't ask those questions and they don't offer anything up but other people that I work with over and over again you just can't help but you know Know more and and be more, just be able to talk to them easier and so that they trust you with the questions that they would have. So yes, I, I guess the reason the answer is yes, I do offer advice, but I never try to make sure it's my only advice because <laughs> I'm just a producer. I'm just making music. If you want to ask me anything, I'm going to tell you how I feel, but that doesn't mean it's right.
0: Well, I'm sure you, you notice common themes though between bands. Like if you work with enough bands, like and five of the bands you've worked with over the years have made the same mistake, which has caused them to get dropped or something, and all the bands that have never gotten dropped have never done that, then, you know, that's probably some yeah. good advice to share with a client. Like, if you see them yeah, going th- down a bad road.
2: I think the advantage that I have is that I do see a lot of bands make their mistakes or correct them, both in their personal lives and their, their business lives, And of course, I'm usually in the middle of band disagreements and that sort of thing. So I I feel that sometimes my role is to make everybody comfortable with their own situation and just tell it to them straight and, um, you know, put the fires out as I'm working just on a record, but that also spills over into personal life where, you know, I've received those 2 a.m. personal calls from people I've worked with in the past, too, that just need some help.
1: Definitely. So question for you, Kevin. A big thing that I always work with a lot of my artists on is, you know, what's going to be the next thing? For example, what's going to make this 2017 now or, you know, what's going to make this very modern and current? What do you do in terms of like strategies and how do you game? What do you think is going to be next? Like when you sit down with a band and they come in and say you've done four records together and you say, okay, we've done this, we've done that. Are we going to double down on this and just go for a legacy vibe and just own it? Or are we going to bring this into the modern, you know, and update the brand? How do you like what strategies do you Employ to try to keep yourself really current and always on the curve of what is coming in and going on.
0: And I, I want to take that question a step further, actually, uh, to something a little specific, like for instance, in this moment when I know they worked with you, when they completely changed their sound. And, uh, lots of times when a band completely changes their image and their sound, that's the end of the road for them. But, uh, that was actually in some ways you could consider that the beginning of their career. So just in reference to what Joel just asked like I know that you've done that so maybe you could talk about it, it like in through the context of in this moment.
2: Right I th- I think again that those are great questions because every record those questions come up and I work with different styles of bands. Even though people would probably pigeonhole me into a certain thing, they're all very, very different people in very, very different bands. So, with a case like in this moment, Maria and Chris are true artists in the sense that they listen to other stuff, they want to do other stuff. They're just not a one-trick pony. So, honestly, that really is Maria driving that ship in a, in a or you know sailing that ship in a certain sense, and I'm there to accommodate her anywhere way I can. The reason why on the Blood album the direction changed so drastically is because they lost half their band and their management, and honestly, that gave Kane and I the freedom to be more involved, and gave Maria the the freedom to just do whatever she wanted to to do at that point, and so it, it was kind of an, a very exciting time for Maria, Chris, and and Kane and I. That you know we didn't necessarily talk about it. On that record, we didn't really talk about it. We just kind of did it. They had no management and no band. And I said, don't worry about it. Just get to Vegas and we'll just start tracking. And, you know, it just happened the way it happened. And once you start liking things, it just takes on a life of its own. Say for Black Widow, you know, it was probably more of a conscious thought is how are we going to one-up blood and how are we going to keep on expanding? But I would say that, that with an act like that, they really do... They're almost old school in the sense that when you used to listen to Bowie from album to album, it would really change. It always sounded like him, but it would be very different. When you listen to Queen, every record was like, what are they going to do now? And I think that music has really lost that a little bit these days, where once you're in your little channel, you generally keep on going on the channel. And like you mentioned, if you deviate, if you color outside the lines, all of a sudden the... Coloring book gets torn up and you're done, and I think that's a fan issue more than an artist issue because most of the artists I deal with like to do different things. Now, in the case of say some other bands, like say like a band like Five Finger, I mean they're very very conscious of who they are and what they do from everything from a lyrical point of view to a musical point of view. And say for the new record, we had some some uh, great ideas of what direction we were going to go in, but it does become a group collective and it does become you know a conversation with the management and everything too even though same thing as in in this moment in the five finger world those guys they're driving their own car man they they really do do what, what they want and they're good at it there's enough sort of lifestyle you know it's a lifestyle band and there's enough sort of really talented people in that band not just in music but marketing and everything else that there's much stronger collectively than individually because they help each other be better and they stop each other from making some mis- mistakes maybe that, you know, will only get past one guy, not the other three guys. So so it it is something that with a lot of bands that we have the discussion, how can we make this better than the last record? Or what or if it's the first time I'm working with that band, it's really a conversation of what didn't you like on the last record or what do you want to do? And then it really becomes a making sure that the label and management are on board because you don't want to surprise anybody. You really want the team to all be focused on the same thing and all to know what's going down. I mean, if someone's expecting you to do do a metal, the heaviest metal record you've ever done, you don't give them a a pop song. But usually you get all the people together and you can say, this is what we're thinking, is that cool? And usually they'll say yes. And again, in the case of Five Finger and, and in this moment, it's really, you know, those guys control their own destinies. And I'm honestly just there to help them do whatever they want to do. Now, obviously, I do have my opinion. I mean, they're not watching the charts the way I'm watching the charts. They're not looking at other band sales the way that I'm looking at other band sales. So I think that that I almost have my A&R hat on constantly and my record company hat on constantly because... I want those bands to do well. I want those bands to sell more and more and to have a better live show and to be able to tour and because that, A, that keeps me in business, but just I care about those people that I, I just want them to enjoy their lives and be making money and playing music, not just playing music and, you know, dying a sad death financially. So <laughs> so I so I do generally have something to contribute by way of, and, and, and it's not always a, a consciously spoken thing it's like if they come to me and want the heaviest record they've ever had I put that through my my brain filter and go okay so we definitely got to make sure these songs are aggressive but I still want to make sure they end up with a couple of radio tracks and I still want to make sure that each song has a hook and I still want to I still think about well if we incorporate a little bit of this sort of thing into it it'll still make it a little bit more mainstream and bring in more people yet won't alienate their base and will make them feel good And so ultimately, I think that as a producer, people come back to me again and again because they're satisfied in the end. They're happy with what they have. And I think that's because I really try to put their interests first. Even if I disagree, you know, if they come to me and say, we want to, you know, play all the the guitar parts on marimbas now, (laughs) I would still find a way to make that work. I put the marimba through an app and put some distortion on it and put it through dfx site at the end of the day
1: <laughs> <laughs> now we're talking
2: <laughs> you know and it would still be heavy um, and still be sellable so you know i'm definitely thinking for more of a role than just a musical one and i think that does do service to my bands because you know let's face it we can all make music at home all all, all we want and do exactly how make it exactly how we want but you if you're looking to have a career, you have to, you know, be able to make money. And it's as simple as that. And if you don't make money, you can't pay people, you can't go on tour, you, you know, you just stop playing music, and then nobody wants wants that, so...
1: Well, speaking of money, what do you think makes a song a hit, in your opinion?
2: It's very simple. You know, do people like it? <laughs> I mean, if <do> people <laughs> like it or not like it? <laughs> and it, honestly, I mean, my favorite songs... Are the hits that you're not ready for, the Bohemian Rhapsodies? I mean, could you have said that that was going to be a hit over and over
0: again? Of course, no. That doesn't follow any of the rules no. at all. Even a song like like
2: Under Pressure. I mean, anybody that's looking to write verse, chorus, verse, chorus, are not using those as guidelines. So you know, a lot of the classic bands that I would listen to from my youth, bands like Supertramp and. And, uh, you know, I mentioned Queen and, you know, David Bowie and different people like that. I mean, it it was a wonderful time in music, I think. Whereas, uh, you know, now it tends to get a little formulated, and I'm at fault in that, too, because I know, you know, if I get the song to be 3 minutes and 20 seconds, it's going to have a better shot to get played on radio than if it's 5 minutes and 50 seconds. So, you know, you do have to take into account what you can and can't do. But honestly, if you have a a 6-minute song but you're interested in it all the way through, it's still going to be a hit. It's still going to be, you know, you can go to Hotel California, and it's no matter how many verses there are, it's still going to be be awesome. They found a way to make it work.
1: Now, how do we get the radio program directors to put a six-minute song on now in this market? <laughs> That's the real question.
2: <laughs> yeah, you know, but, but I think that, let's say that Bohemian Rhapsody were to come out now, it would still get noticed just as much. And it might be tough at first, but eventually... As, probably even more so now, because now a song can have a life outside of radio. I mean, in a sense, radio's becoming less and less important. If even, like, say, The Sound of, of Silence, you know, a song that I recently did, I mean, that took on life way before radio played it. I mean, disturbed did that video, and all of a sudden, people were passing that around instantly, and it was selling amazingly before radio even started playing it. So the good news is these days you know if you make something awesome people will probably find it if all the pieces of the puzzle are there whereas before you know you pretty much you know before the internet you needed more radio and to be on a big tour and you almost don't need that anymore i, th- I think i think if you make something truly extraordinary people will find it now most of us can't always make something that extraordinary so some sometimes it is a little bit easier to play within the rules. You know, make your songs shorter rather than longer and make sure there's hooky courses and it, you know, it repeats itself so by the end of the first listen that you can already pick up the title. It's always good to have the title as a first thing you hear and the last thing you hear. There's all there's all those sort of techniques that go through our minds of, you know, how do we really lock this down? But at the same time, you know that's when someone surprises you with something completely different that you just love listening to and you can't turn it off and it doesn't follow any of those rules so you know i, I mean i think that that for me it's the same thing as, as just writing music is learn as much as you can about it but then try not to be too tied down to those rules and guidelines because it's much more exciting
0: when you break the rules rather than follow them definitely so speaking of hooks because you mentioned hooks a few times uh, what, what, in your opinion, makes a good hook?
1: Well,
2: it's just something that inspires people, and that they can recognize and look forward to it. I think part of music appreciation is almost waiting for that hook, and then you get it. It's almost the waiting for it that you're waiting for. You're you're, you're waiting for Phil Collins to go do 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 do. So it's the anticipation of those those wonderful moments that you can repeat. Well, I mean, he doesn't repeat that riff in that song, but that's basically what makes a hook is, is something that people want to hear over and over again, and not only while they're listening to that music, but after they turn it off, they're driving to work, radio's off, and they're still singing it. I, th- I think there's no better definition of a of hook than music or lyrics which get into the person's subconscious so they're... It's constantly rolling around in their head In a good way, not a bad way You know, I mean you can go Friday, Friday Or whatever that was And you know, maybe that, that, that's an awesome hook
0: But but maybe not the hook that you want In your head So for anyone uh, listening If you don't know what he's talking about Look up uh, Rebecca Black Friday um, On YouTube and
1: I think everybody on earth that was alive When that came out heard that song At least 400 times <laughs>
0: Possibly, but just in case, in case they don't know I want them to go walk, listen to it.
2: I mean, you should because honestly, I mean, there's a lot of awesome things that you can get from that song, and and even on, and I'm not even saying I don't like that song. I'm I'm not ragging on that song at all.
1: It's a hit. It's undeniable.
2: I look at all that and go, way to go. That's awesome. And it doesn't matter if it's Gangnam Style or it doesn't matter if it's Call Me Maybe. Whatever it is, if you get that many people to be to engaged to be engaged in listening to it it's a wonderful thing and a lesson to be learned.
0: Absolutely.
1: I always th- say to myself, I wish I wrote that song. <laughs> you know, no like,
0: kidding. Yeah. Definitely. So since we're uh, starting to run out of time, we've got a few uh, questions from our listeners for you. Do you mind answering a few of them?
2: Uh, I don't mind as long as they aren't. Uh, why do you suck so so bad? We
0: deleted that one. We deleted that one. <laughs> we,
2: we deleted okay, them. good. <laughs> All right, cool. Um, so Jordan
0: <laughs> M. Belton is asking, how does your mixing workflow change when going from the likes of Shania Twain to Disturbed.
2: Well, on the Shania Twain stuff, I didn't actually mix that. That was Mike Shipley that mixed that. So, but I can answer the question still, and and that is that um, it doesn't. Honestly, you know, there's different things you have to keep in mind between those kind of genres. I mean, obviously, with a band like Disturbed, you know, you need it to sound heavy. You need it to sound thick. But honestly, to me, mixing mixing. I mean, I mean you're going to make the disturbed stuff a little bit dirtier and a little bit more aggressive, but it's all the same pool. I think that lots of great mixers can float back and forth be between different styles, and and as long as you know what the end game is, as long as you can put your your mo- your ears in the ears of the l- listener and what they want to hear, and in some some cases, it's you know completely different plain environments. If you're mixing a dance club song, obviously you got to think a lot differently on bottom end versus if you're mixing a more AM radio-ish kind of song. So, you know, I think all the techniques are pretty similar and and, and all the, you know, it, it's just a matter of knowing what the listeners of that music really expect. I'm not sure if that answered the question exactly the way that he wanted me to, but...
0: It does. I think it's a, more of a how you think about it rather than routing pro tools differently i guess i think he was wondering if you like set your 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 pro tools up completely different or something on a different style
2: right exactly and with that in mind the answer to that is no i don't set it differently i mean i will use different techniques as needed but you know i mean i kind of have a couple of mixed templates for most music that i mix Unless it's completely different stuff, and it, it is mostly the same. It's like you know, it just looks like a mixing board. Just typically, you know, there's there's yeah. not a lot of changes going on from style to style. All the changes are more subjective changes, like EQ and compression, and all those and effects, those style of things, more than the signal signal routing.
0: Yeah, makes sense. So uh, Chris Hart is asking, what's your favorite mic for overheads?
2: Huh? Well, I've used I've used a lot of different overhead mics, but Honestly, weirdly enough, I know it's not the the best or most expensive mic, but I kind of go back to AKG 451s. It may be because in my youth, that was the first awesome overhead mic that I had. And even though now I have a lot more choices, I just like how aggressive they sound on on drums. Yeah. And you know, you, you know again, I'm not the guy that thinks that just because something is more expensive it has it's going to be better. It's like wine. I mean, the most expensive bottle isn't always the bottle you like. And I think particularly nowadays when like alt rock is more about style than it is necessarily about let's say um, sonic purity. So for me the 451 just seemed to do the right thing for me and whether it's because I'm used to it or not. I mean I don't know I just put up some Cole Riven mics up the other day and I love those mics but it just doesn't you know it's just too mellow of a microphone to kind of make drum sound sound rocking Cool
0: Kier Lacroix is asking how do you go about developing a song to fit the artist's vision and profile
2: Well most most of the time I'm writing with the artist so usually they'll bring the seed and then I'll just try to expand on that and make that better so I'm not trying to you know fit a fit a square in a round hole other times when like it's a writing session I mean obviously I get on the phone with them ahead of time and just make sure that I know what they're looking for and I'll listen to their catalog if I don't already know the act I mean I'll listen to the, the catalog of what they've had and then you know you can you can pretty much tell what they like where they go with melodies and how they do it you know again for, for me I'm, I'm a guy that definitely likes to look under the hood Of anything that I'm that I'm working on, so you know I want to know what you know what makes Maria respond to a song more than what makes Ivan from Five Finger Death Punch, you know, respond to to melody and chords. So I, you know, I'm pretty schooled in theory as well, uh, in the sense that you know I know that Maria, if I have a melody that starts on on a ninth rather than you know the root that Maria will respond to it better. Like, I technically know what makes people tick, and that's what I try to do. I put it in my data bank and get all this data, and then I try to ignore it and just do what I think is best. But I think the first thing is, in our line of work, when we're serving artists and serving other people, is, is to not necessarily put too much of your own stuff in there. It's to really try to assess who they are and what they like and what will work with that band. And I may have a different idea of what will work with them rather than they have, but usually it's a combination of that, and you compromise a little bit, and I've been lucky a couple times where I've gotten the artist to try a couple of things, and that turns their head around, and I think that if you show them the success, if you can just get them to try some things they wouldn't normally try, and they're happy with that result, you just get more and more power, in a sense, and more and more impact on that artist, and in some ways, you unlock Pandora's box you know, with those people, too. I mean... In a, in a good way, though not a bad way, in the, in the sense that that sometimes people just need a little bit of a nudge or a helping hand or directing them in a very, very small way, and they respond to it and go crazy. Like And you can, again, take the sound of silence of David, you know, I mean, all they did was say, well, why don't you try singing that an octave down? And those are really, and he killed it, and he nailed it, and he just responded to that and took it even further than I thought he would, so... You know, a lot of times it's just really just helping them maybe do things still with, in their nature, but not necessarily something they would naturally do.
0: So speaking of theory, this is actually one of our questions, but you touched on it, and uh, I'm curious. How important is theory to you?
2: Well, I think theory for me and my style has been very important where because I like doing a lot of vocals, a lot of background vocals, and I like doing stuff like strings. I mean, if, if I didn't know as much as I do about musical theory I probably wouldn't have been able to do the Sound of Silence the way that we actually did it and I love doing that I really enjoy that process on the other hand theory for some people can including myself can become a liability too and that's why I say you got to know as learn as much as you can and then but then not focus on it or not depend on it and so say with my son Kane I mean I, I kind of guided him in a much different way because I was so schooled growing up that I think that I lost some edge that, that maybe that other people had that could just naturally play something that they've never done and run with it. Whereas I always had to kind of figure it out in my head and make sure I, I knew what I where what changes I was going to go to and you know. Whereas some people are just so natural at it. And I think that, say, in Kane's sense, he's a different writer and a different producer than me because he's not strapped down to all the theory that I have. And, and that's why I like writing on guitar because I don't know as I don't I don't know I'm not as well versed on guitar as I am on piano or something like that. So to me sometimes it's just random where my fingers end up and it sounds good or it doesn't sound good. And I think that that's a wonderful place to be for a lot of people. It's just that my nature is that I just got to understand it. You know, once I once I do something that somebody likes, I want to know why they like that. Yep. And 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 or if I hear a hit song, it's a, like questions you're ask, asking me earlier on, why do I like that so much? Why do other people like that when I don't like that? I mean, all these questions are sort of theory questions that I really need to know, but I don't think anybody naturally needs that. I think some of the most inventive singers I've worked with know nothing about music. You know, I mean, Ozzy doesn't know a, a C, C from a A. I mean, a lot of the people, the, the great, great singers that I work with aren't strapped and aren't confined to theory and I think that it, it helps them more than if they had my knowledge. I mean, I, that's why they hire me is to give them a little bit of that. But at the end of the day, music makes you feel good, feel bad. It makes you respond or it doesn't. And theory is kind of irrelevant to the big picture other than just understanding you know, I just like, like I said, when I hear something I like, I want to understand why I like that. And yep. so for me, it's a necessary thing.
0: Definitely. All right. Here's a question from Al Bandino. Uh, he said, uh, that Papa Roach and in this moment, snare sound with the tail and reverb. I've been trying to achieve that for a long time. How do you do it?
2: Well, that's someone who's listening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know what that, I mean, I, I have a lot of similar techniques on a lot of my stuff, obviously. Uh, A lot of that comes from compressing the room tone and the overhead. I actually get probably a lot more drum sound out of the overheads than you would think. And, you know, if I only had three mics, I'd put two overheads on and and one in front of the kick. So... A lot of that tail reverb... I mean, I don't really use reverb on drums. I've never used reverb for... Well, I shouldn't say never. I mean, you sometimes do if it's you know a particularly slow song or something. But generally, I like to get as much natural verb out of the room. And you can only do that if you have a room that speaks in that way. Like, the best room I ever had, oddly enough, was my kitchen at the first house when I moved to Vegas. I mean, for whatever reason, when I set my drums up sort of in the dining room, it just made the drums explode. Um,
1: <laughs> you know who else has a really good sounding kitchen is Bob Marley. Is that right? I was in his house at Nam and he had his drum set up in his kitchen and they sounded killer.
2: I don't know what it is about that, but about kitchens and stuff. But you know, it just has the right amount of pre-delay for the verb and the slapback effect, and it just worked out really well. So, in order to get some of those tail verbs that I have in some of my recordings, you almost have to have the right kind of room because I'm not done a reverb in. You know, I'm making my own reverb by compressing the room. In tandem with the snare. So, but sometimes those kind of things you can almost only get away with if you have a drummer who's already playing and he's well balanced as a player, meaning that if the guy's killing his cymbals, you're never going to be able to use those overheads for your drums because the cymbals are too freaking loud. So, you know, some of it is player based and some of it is just technique based of being able to either mix more room tone in, more room mics in, or more overhead mics into that snare and in some cases not playing cymbals really helps or playing less cymbals or possibly recording them on a separate take you know in some cases may really help you compress the heck out of that room and get that reverb tail to kind of start poking through through a little bit more the natural reverb tail not not the uh processed reverb
0: so since we're already on the topic of uh, drums uh christopher clancy's asking how do you go about processing your drums they always sound really solid and powerful yet totally clean i find that a lot of mixers end up with a lot of mud what steps do you take to avoid this
2: well i think honestly some of it again comes from the player you know i remember one time i was Back in my my band days, I was playing in a club, and the sound man came up to me and said, "Man, you—it's so easy to make your drums sound good because you have such a great balance." And I, I didn't understand what he meant, but then I thought about it, and he explained it to me. No, your ride's not too loud, so where you're hitting your ride it's not pinning the overhead mics back, and your snares and kick—you're hitting your kick loud enough so that it can come through in the in the, on the rooms. So half the battle is having a good player, but for me, it's it's also recording techniques too in a, in a certain sense and. And in some cases, I mean, some bands you're using samples and stuff to supplement. I mean, I never try to, to depend on them, but in lots of modern music, I mean, it's it's almost to a point where you have no choice but to, to supplement sounds. And sometimes that may be as little as just adding a little bit of an 808 kick to your kick drum it's just for the bottom end, just to have that sine wave-ish kind of extra round bottom end to, in other cases, you're adding just a little bit of a percussive you know, snare a tacky sample on top of the guy's natural snare just to give it a little bit more poke through your mix. So you know, it's not always one way, and it's just something you have to struggle with. And and uh, and, and even you know, I'll tell you another thing, another trick that I have is that. I am mixing my drums, or at least my not not cymbals and stuff, but my kick, snare, and toms really, really loud in my mix. So if you were to take off my master bus compression or limiting or some of my, my master bus tools, you would probably be quite surprised with how the mix actually sounds. But I think that that's far more effective than compressing them to death ahead of time and then trying to make them sound loud. In just a regular uncompressed or unlimited mix.
1: Have you ever tried a clipper, Kevin? The DF clipper? Any clipper.
2: I'm not sure what you mean by clipper. Is that just like a limiter?
1: Uh, sort of, but it, it gives you more perceived volume. It's essentially the same thing we're kind of talking about. So, um, what it does is it, instead of like a limiter, you know, will punch down the transient of your drum, a clipper will lop it off, meaning it'll in, keep the transient intact and give you a lot more perceived volume. So, you can crank your drums up super loud and clip them. And okay. when you hit the mastering limiter, they're not going to come out, they're not going to adjust in volume and you're going to maintain all your punch and clarity and impact. So it's awesome. kind of just like a, a different way of doing what you're describing and um, you know, maintaining the punch and attack of your drum and making right. it sound super upfront and really aggressive.
2: Right, no, I've never tried that, but oddly enough, I've done something similar and I haven't tried it in the, the more modern version of Pro, Pro Tools, but somewhere around Pro Tools 9, I found that if you routed things through an aux and completely redlined it and clipped it, it wouldn't give you that digital white noise. It would just lop off. It literally looked like a square wave on top. But to yep. me, to me, it works so much better than limiters, at least the ones I had at the time. It, but I, I used it you know, so so much that I almost felt embarrassed that I thought, this is technically completely incorrect. And <laughs> if, if, if anybody was watching me, I'd be embarrassed but audio wise the result that i was listening to sounded awesome so I, you know that's just another rule that i've developed into is that i don't care what anybody says it sounds good it doesn't sound good use your own intuition and maybe you'll break some new new ground
0: you actually answered the next question so here's the the last question we've got is from Chris Holmes and he's saying that well, i'll just read it as if it's him <laughs> i'd really like to know your thoughts your thought process on automation for the videos on youtube it looks like your sessions are filled with all kinds of plug-in volume and eq automation it would be interesting to know a bit more of why and when
2: so i think that's the best thing about digital land these days is the automation and yeah my my sessions are fully automated in so many different ways, right? For Even the mastering, the master bus compression limiting is automated so that it speaks differently from the verse to the chorus. And those are things we kind of couldn't do back in the old days. I mean, it was just so much work to ride and you just never get the fader rides right. Well, now there's no excuse to have them wrong. So I just find sometimes it's better to ride volume levels in a Pro Tools rig rather than just compressing it to death, or at least riding it first and making it as even as you can, and then using gentle comp- compression just to kind of for texture. Uh, so, but I'm riding everything from volume levels to effect sends, obviously, constantly, like particularly on vocals. You know, just the tail ends of words, and, and the reality is, you can use. You know, you can use ducking de- de- delays and, and different things like that, but I just find that the old school by dialing it in is just the best way because then you can really control how loud every delay is. And, you know, and I, I think that's really important if you want your mixes to sound as good as they possibly can. So there's automation like that, even um, even automation on EQs, on a vocal. I mean, if the singer, like, say, say in particular with someone like Maria, you know, from... In this moment, who goes from a whisper to a scream on any given song, I mean, obviously her voice is going to sound very different throughout that whole process, so I'm going to have to automate low-mid when she's getting up close to the mic and singing like this, versus when she's (laughs) backing away and screaming her lungs out. I mean, so I'm really automating almost a holy vocal from start until end and some of it may be just a little bit of 3K taking out when they're too aggressive and some of it's like when they sing quieter and get close to the mic the proximity effect or just the natural tendencies of the voice to have more low mid I'm dialing that down so definitely automation for me is a key key thing to making things sound balanced without making them sound stupidly compressed and you know sometimes that kind of compression can lead to other other problems too so definitely I'm not, I'm not afraid to draw a dot in my screen and move it around.
0: Awesome. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on. It, thank you for sharing so much and just being on here for this long and answering all our questions in that much detail. you have been a, an amazing guest and honored to have you on here.
1: Yes, definitely. Thank you for being so generous with your time.
2: Sure, no problem. I really appreciate um, the questions you guys asked. I mean, they were all really good questions and hopefully, you know, your viewers will appreciate that too. And as well, I mean, I love love DFX site. I don't, I don't know if, you know, if that overlaps with this podcast, but I mean, I just used it on Banjo yesterday again. So, I mean, it's, 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 <laughs> That's it's awesome. it, I'm probably using it in ways you never thought that anybody would, but it's, it's a great tool. And, um, and we love that. Yeah. And, you know, and honestly, it's because of those kind of things that I know that you guys are really, you know, doing some great work and with your podcast or your products that you're making I think it's really cool and I think that you guys are you know probably young guys that are going to do a lot of great things so so, nice. uh, best of luck to you thank you we
1: appreciate
0: it the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Stam Audio Stam Audio creates zero compromised recording gear that is light on the wallet only the best components are used and each one goes through a rigorous testing process with one thing in mind getting the best sound possible Go to StamAudio.com
1: for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit URM.com.